to another episode of Damn You Football, the show where Mark from the Dude and the Monkey podcast chats about football for around 40 to 45 minutes. This is episode three or four, I believe. I can't remember, to be honest, so I'm not going to worry too much about it. Um, so, hello listeners, and uh, I hope you're going to enjoy the show. I'm going to do a kind of quick recap on what's sort of happened in the past couple of weeks in the uh, wider footballing world, focusing uh, mainly, obviously, on the Premier League. Uh, and I'm also going to answer some questions. Probably going to focus most on the questions because I've had some really interesting and quite um, good ones with a few sort of talking points that will that'll cover a few kind of bases uh, around my particular club, Liverpool, but also uh, as a wider kind of look around sort of football in, in general and especially sort of Premier League football and the way that that's governed um, differently to... Or perceived to be correction, uh, governed differently to to other football. So as I say, I am your host Mark Foster, uh, and we'll we'll kick straight into it. Um, so since we last recorded, uh, there's been a couple of uh, weeks worth of Premier League action plus a international break. I'll tell you now, I I couldn't give a shit about international football. I just frankly don't care. I'm one of those terrible fans that I don't care about it and I, but I do watch tournaments so you know next next year in 2018 there probably will be a weekly world cup podcast um being the hypocrite that i that i am but there have been a couple of weeks worth of uh, premier league action and to kind of go over we've had um Manchester United continuing their death fine form um getting goals in games where last season maybe they wouldn't have so for instance a Leicester 2-0 at home still not conceding goals as well uh, United but then they did follow up the 2-2 with Stoke last week uh, Stoke are a battling team but have not had a fantastic start to the season but um there's always the argument, I think, with when a team has a, a favourable um, start to the season, which United have had a favourable start to the season, there's no denying that. However, um, you could perceive that someone, for instance, like um, Chelsea, had uh, a favourable start to the season by opening the season with Burnley at home, but then they you know, that didn't work out too well. So there are the argument that you know he's often sort of bound about that there are no easy games in the Premier League and you know it's true, there are no easy games in the Premier League. It's, it's a tough league to, to win and every team can, you know, can... And battle it out there and start prove that they're a not as far as say a decent footballing team, but they're a they're a tough team to beat at home. Or no, they're a tough team to take points off at home. So two two uh, for United in in disastrous there. You know, top six teams will will take um, the idea of getting draws like that against teams like Stoke and Watford and West Brom and things like that. You know, if you come away with with a healthy draw, then yeah, it's not the end. It's not the end of the world, to be honest. Um, Arsenal managed to sort of bounce back after their um, thumping to Liverpool and four 0 Arsenal really did that that week. Kind of playing to Liverpool's hands by essentially acting very much on the front foot. Um, this Liverpool team has two has two kind of ways of playing. It has the um, a. The, the, the phrase that people would use is, is Gagan press. It's not quite a Gagan press, actually, though, um, in, in terms of fact for how they, they play it often. Um, but what Arsenal did was they, they chose to try and take Liverpool on at their own game. And the, the truth of the matter is that, that Arsenal are a little bit... They're, they're more than the sum of their parts, Arsenal. Uh, and the problem is their parts aren't all kind of working quite right at the moment so it, I, I, it's going to be a tough season for Arsenal and they're going to um, in a similar way to to actually to Liverpool they're going to have these these kind of perceived kind of ups and downs where things are going to look a little bit a little bit glum at points to be honest you know they're going to get um, the odd thumping um, very much similar to Liverpool in how they are going to get the the odd sort of thumping which springs me I'm going to bounce between weeks here you know so if it seems Confusing then, so fucking what? Um, you know, Liverpool, we, we suffered a heavy defeat at the, at the hands of uh, Manchester City uh, this um, last week uh, in a, a 5 0 thrashing, really. Um, Liverpool going down to, to 10 men fairly early on, which I'll, I'll come to because I've had a question about that. Um, so I'll come to my thoughts on that when I when we get to the, the actual question element of it there. Um, but then what happened was it is uh, Manchester City dealt with Liverpool very well and played very, very well, but Liverpool. They didn't react to the to the sending off very well at all. They kind of they lit their wounds and felt a little bit too sorry for themselves, really, and that created a a situation whereby Manchester City had to play. All they had to do was play well uh, to get the maximum points, but they didn't. They played very well and uh, ended up 
um, giving Liverpool a, 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 to be honest, a deserved pace, I think, really, to be honest. But I don't think that'll be the first time um, this season that that, that happens. Um, a lot of focus will be put on the Liverpool defence, which again, I have a question about, which I will come to uh, later on. Um, and, you know, it's quite right that that, that that focus should be put on there. But again, I'll come more to that. Um, the wheels are starting to come up a little bit for the Everton um train a little bit you know the being a, a local fan there was a lot of um and as anybody will know if you new listeners i i, I i'll probably repeat this if, apologies if i am for, for for long-term listeners to the podcast or short but long-term listeners to, to the damn you football podcast um i'm i'm a non-partisan um football fan in the sense that i don't i don't believe in the tribalism of it um me if if my team wins football it doesn't make me look better i don't understand it. i i will never get my head around how um, people so much kind of identify themselves as their team so if their team's winning it's fantastic and if somebody else's team that they don't support is losing it's really funny it's i just i don't care to be honest i care if my team wins if my team wins fantastic if it doesn't i don't give a shit who else fucking wins or loses to be honest um so yeah, it, it was kind of like that, but the Everton were, because they spent a lot of money this season, counteracted by the fact that they sold um, Romelu Lukaku for, for £90 million and were going to sell um, Ross Barkley for what they perceived to be about £30 million. So their actual net spend wasn't wasn't that high and people will then start criticising and say, well, net spend doesn't make sense. But net spend is kind of what you've got to have a look at if um, if you... For instance, it, 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 it's crazy to think that the net spend isn't isn't relevant. It is, it is. If you if you ship a hundred millions worth of players and you buy a hundred and five million pounds worth of players, then effectively you've improved your squad to the tune of five million. That that that's just that's the way it is. Um, whereas if you spend two hundred and fifty million and you recoup 100 million then what you've actually done is you've improved your squad to the tune of 150 million if you spend 25 million but you recoup 100 million it means that your squad is down 75 million pounds worth of player slash players that's i don't get this 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 current trend of of saying that net spend doesn't doesn't matter Of, of course it matters it's insane i think it doesn't so everton had a big um outlay but a small enough net spend a large net spend but not a not a Manchester City or Manchester United net spend um, a bigger net spend however than than Liverpool uh, is what I would say there and so they were very much uh, very bullish which they should be you know I don't fans you know things were looking quite rosy at that point very bullish about the way that uh, their season might go and there was the obvious all oh, you know we'll, we'll I guarantee we'll finish higher than Liverpool etc etc which they may well do you know they've got a good manager and a good squad um, but then the you know back to back defeats Chelsea two um, two nil uh, and then getting beat at home three 0 by Spurs and then getting beat um, by Atalanta in the uh, Europa League three 0 again kind of highlights the fact that although they've brought uh, Wayne Rooney um, back to the, the the club to replace Roman Lukaku I don't know that can be perceived as right um, it, it still shows that they they are actually really quite short in the forward line and not saying the striker was which was a priority. Um, seem to be uh, a frustration, I would say, for the fans and probably for for Ronald Koeman. It's parallels can be drawn um, for that to to Liverpool not signing a, a centre back. Um, however, I, I think it, it's it's not something you can really. Um, I suppose they're not perfectly similar um, in the sense that Liverpool were trying to shop at a a very different level of the market to where Everton have the ability to shop. There's no, that's not a, that's not me downplaying Everton. That's not me having my, my red hat on or anything like that. It, it's just a simple fact. A couple of years ago, Liverpool were shopping exactly the sort of same markets as, as Everton. Uh, once you have Champions League football and you are um, one of the, the financially um, top 10 clubs in the world and Historically, one of the top ten clubs in, in in the world, and one of the you know the big clubs in world football. Um, you know, people will say, "Oh, you know about Liverpool? It's all history." But the, the fact is that, that Liverpool still are a, a global name, and they're a global sports brand. So, 
what Liverpool were trying to do was trying to shop in that just below top echelon um, of, of, of football. So you've got your your, your, your clubs like um, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid and Barcelona to an extent, um, PSG, Manchester City, and you can probably throw Manchester United into there. They're shopping at one end of the, the, the market and then you've got just below that, you've got teams like, um, I think Chelsea to an extent in this. And then... Liverpool, AC Milan, Borussia Dortmund, um, and clubs like that are then shopping in in that. You know, you could maybe even throw a Tottenham into that uh, if they actually, you know, showed some financial ambition. Which they've got the stadium, etc., and everything like that. So there's there's all that going on there. Uh, but there you've got that kind of group of clubs, and then they've got the group below that, which is where Everton uh, are shopping at, and to seemingly. Be wanting and very much saying they need to sign a striker. It, it shows that the market was was kind of all over the place this season because you know a, a year ago Everton could quite easily have gone out and spent twenty five million and got a fifteen to twenty five million pounds worth of player for that. Um, this season, fifteen to twenty five million pounds worth of players were going to cost you forty million, and it's not going to get you what what you want, and so. Everton ended up not with anything which might come back and bite them in the arse, but I think that had become a theme, to be honest, uh, over the course of the season for a few clubs. Uh, I would say you'll get that with certainly with Liverpool defensive problems, but I can say I'll come to that later on. Um, but you'll also get that with Manchester City, I think, not bringing an extra striker in. They've, they've uh, you know, Ian Acho going to uh, Leicester has left them with, and I say this, just um, Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero at the club. Well, we all know Aguero's going to have a few weeks out of the season. Um, we don't know about the, the about how well um, or robust um, Gabriel Jesus is, um, or Gabriel Jesus, um, how robust his um, physicality is for the for the Premier League. He's far too young to sort of say that. Uh, he might be uh, somebody like Romelu Lukaku who will deliver you 36 to 38 games a season. He might be more along the lines of Aguero, who will give you 26 to 32 games a season. Um, so that may be where Manchester City will have to probably look at putting someone like Sane and putting him through the middle. Or even Kevin De Bruyne could play through the middle there. I would certainly think he's a, a, a good enough footballer and a, a strong enough footballer and an intelligent enough footballer to switch into that position uh, with a relative, a relative ease. Um, so I, I don't think they'll have that many problems. Um, I think it's going to be around the clubs like um, Everton and Liverpool. I think are the, the two glaring clubs that have kind of big, I suppose, holes uh, within their squads. And you could also say the same for Chelsea. Their squad is quite light um, on there. Um, but yes, so what else happened last week? Uh, Chelsea, yes, beating Leicester. They've had a good few weeks. They seem to have come back from that, that early season wobble. Uh, Conte is, is, a, is a fiery personality. Um and the guy has form for for making his um his frustrations known uh, in his disquiet quite known quite quite firmly um so he's already kind of sort of saying that um what have we got coming up fixtures wise this week to to have a look at the interesting games that are coming up so we've already had Brighton uh, sorry Bournemouth against Brighton which um, Bournemouth pulled out a 2-1 win it's a good win for them they've had a, a sticky start to the season uh, but I think they'll 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 be alright I think they'll they're not going to they're not going to finish top half but I, I just don't see them being relegation forward they've spent spent money they've spent Okay, I think I won't go as far as to say they spent well. Um, but then we've got Chris Palace against Southampton. Southampton really need to start kick on going and work out what they're going to do with Virgil van Dijk, uh, whether or not he's going to uh, have to just kind of sit it out and wait until a, a possible January move, or whether or not he's going to actually uh, be brought back in to the fold there. Uh, he is, um, they have a weird system uh, where Stephen Davis is the club captain. Um, but uh, Virgil van Dijk is the game captain, so he, he plays more than Stephen Davis, so he's the captain on the field, and then you've got uh, Stephen Davis is captain of the club. It's a strange system, but it seems to work quite well. It seems to work for them. Uh, Huddersfield against Leicester. Huddersfield started the season quite well. Leicester, they're doing what they did last season. Uh, Liverpool against Burnley. Burnley, that's going to be an interesting one. Burnley play quite a low block, um, and across Liverpool... Struggled against, struggled against that low block. Um, it, it's going to be a game where I think if Liverpool get an early goal, then you, you could see Liverpool going on and having a um, having a good time against Burnley. So Liverpool scored in the first twenty minutes. You could be looking at a three four goal swing in that game. 
Um, Chris Wood has been a great signing for Burnley. He's, a, he's more than just a lump it forward player. He's, he's an intelligent football. We saw that with his goal against Crystal Palace where, yeah, it was a gift and he was giving the ball clean through, but it was an intelligent finish and he really did spin off and it, it was a really... It showed um, technique um, and you can't be a big lump and have that level of that level of technique um, and not expect to score goals. Uh, I think he'll be a solid... Um, I think he'll get 15 goals this season, you know... I, Probably enough to keep to keep Burnley up. Sensible by that, really sensible by. Uh, Newcastle against Stoke with the way Newcastle are at the moment and the way Stoke have been for years. Um, that's a thoroughly dull looking game. What against Man City? I think Watford could cause Man City problems there. Um, they're going to cause teams problems. Um, Marco Silva is very defensively organised. He, he he brings that defensive solidity and um, that complete organisation to his teams. Um, and Manchester City. It's away from home, you know. They they look solid. I would say that I don't think Watford are going to steal a win or anything like that. But I think Watford are going to make it difficult. I would still say you'll probably see a Manchester City win by three goals to two or something like that. West Brom against West Ham, uh, Battle of the Wests. Uh, again, uh, two teams who seem to just kind of exist for not a lot really, just to be a bit. You know, West Ham are permanently in some kind of crisis, and West Brom are just. I don't think their fans really know what to expect of them at the moment. Um, might be a 1-1 or 2-1 or something like that. Spurs against Swansea is interesting. Um, it'd be quite interesting if um, Llorente plays uh, gets his Spurs debut. I don't think he's played yet. His Spurs debut there. Um, Spurs should should cost that quite easy. Chelsea against Arsenal is a very interesting one. Um, I think Chelsea could give Arsenal a bit of a, 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 a thwacking there because Arsenal just seems to be on the the ropes a little bit at the moment and Chelsea you know Conte's Chelsea do sort of play on that they are a bit of a machine in, in that sense and Chelsea do like beating Arsenal so yeah that could be quite a quite an uncomfortable afternoon for Arsenal uh, and Manchester United against Everton um, historically that's been a, an easy three points Manchester United uh, I don't see that changing I think that the interesting thing is going to be uh, will Rooney play against Manchester United and will uh, Lukaku Perform against Everton. Um, it'd be quite interesting if that was a one-all draw and both those players scored goals. Um, but yeah, that's that's a it's an interesting matchup. That to be honest. So again, I'm thinking that'll probably go to to, to United. So my my games there are going to be Palace against Southampton. I think that's going to be a draw. Huddersfield Leicester. I think Huddersfield are going to take that. Liverpool Burnley. I think Liverpool will win, but it'll be either be two-one or four-one. Uh, Newcastle against Stoke. I think Newcastle take that by a couple of goals to one. Watford against Man City. Man City three, Watford two. Uh, West Brom against West Ham, 1-1 written all over it. Spurs against Swansea, 3-1 to Spurs. Chelsea, Arsenal. I think Chelsea are going to beat them 4-1. Uh, and Manchester United, Everton, 2-0 uh, to Manchester United uh, there. Um, I'm not really going to transfer talks. It's two weeks after the transfer window is finished. Um, my kind of thoughts are, I think that the idea now is that next season the transfer window will uh, finish before the season starts. I think it's a very good idea. Um, anyone who's saying I'd, that we should scrap the transfer window, it, that'd be a terrible idea. It's the transfer window is there for a very good reason, um, and I think that it, it needs to stay. But I think the, the sensible idea is to um, is to change um, is to change the way that this is this is going, uh, and to change the way. Um, it is done you know it, it, it's crazy the fact that for, for instance um, you had Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain joining Liverpool and uh, in his first interview referenced the fact that that he said you know we are in really good form winning our last game 4-0 well he played for Arsenal in that last game that they won 4-0 incidentally in the past two games Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's played in the Premier League the teams uh, have had a um, the teams that he played for have conceded nine goals and the teams that he's played for have scored zero um, so Looking up for him, uh, so yeah, that was that's kind of that. I think that yeah, I think that was it needed to happen. The reason why it can't happen that they can get rid of a transfer window is because it will lead to um, teams if they get an injury at right back, they'll just go out and buy a right back, but they won't buy it from the Premier League. They'll buy it from from sort of lower down, and it, it just it causes chaos. The transfer windows are a good idea. They just need to be the, the situation needs to be looked at every few years. Um, so, I've got some decent questions, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire off these questions uh, in, a, in a second to get kind of 
an idea um, from there because there's some decent discussion points that I can go to from here, which is great. The, you know, the thing is, I, that what I wanted to do with this podcast is to kind of get off discussion points and to answer questions and sort of give sort of my views on that. If you know, if people want my views on, on these things, so Ian Loring, uh, thank you very much, Ian, my uh, podcasting life partner, um, and he's asked if you kicked someone in the face accidentally. Would you expect to get sent off? This is in reference to the Sadio Mane sending off against Manchester City, I am assuming, Ian. Um, so, yes, well, to, to explain the situation for y'all who don't know, which I'm sure if you're listening to this, you do know, Sadio Mane was sent off for a dangerous play because he had a high foot where he was running on to a 50 50 ball, and Edison, uh, the Manchester City keeper, came out of his area, went to head the ball, and Sadio Mane's foot essentially did quite badly um, ash with his face, um, knocking the keeper, seemingly unconscious, we think. Uh, there's been no confirmation that he was not unconscious, I don't think, um, but has left a nasty a nasty mark on, on his face. And Sadio Mane was, was sent off, and there seems to be a lot of conjecture about whether or not it is a sending off or it isn't a sending off. Now, the general consensus, I'll put my opinion in a minute, but the general consensus is um, that the referee was, was abiding by the letter of the law and therefore had to send him off. Not technically true, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the majority of senior pros um, who played the game seem to all say the same thing, is that Sadio Mane has to go for that ball. He, he has to go for that ball. Um, otherwise, he, he gets accused of, um, of you know shirking out of a challenge. Sadio Mane is not the type of player to shirk out of a challenge. Um my view on it was, and I watched it in real time. I wasn't in the stadium, but I watched it uh, when I watched it in real time. Was that it was a it was a clash. Um, the first part of this is that you have to take out the you have to look at it in in stages. Now, the thing is, I don't think it was a red card. That's not just me. Little played on. It's two players both going for the ball, coming together. And that's that's kind of what happens. It is it is a contact sport. It is a physical sport. Edison sadly comes off quite a lot worse um, than Sadio Mane, and Sadio Mane's foot is up high. Let's put up in that for a second. Now the goalkeeper once he comes out of his area it becomes an outfield player, so therefore he can't he can't use his hands. However, he does duck his thing in for a start off. Um, to put to your question, Ian, he doesn't actually kick him in the face. Um, and that's not semantics. He doesn't kick him in the face. He's jumping up to get the ball with his foot in his face. And his foot collides with the head. So you can argue one of two things is, one, if he's kicked him in the face, technically Edison's also headbutting him in the boot, uh, which is a strange one. It's not. It's not a kick. It's not a headbutt. It's, it's a coming together. Now, do I think he should have been sent off? No. Um, can I see why he was sent off? Absolutely. The, the angle the referee actually has from it, is 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 the gnarliest looking angle. It is a, a high foot that's going into someone's face. If you rewind back three minutes, um, actually, Sadio Mane got kicked in the face by a high boot uh, on the edge of the Liverpool area, and not even a free kick was given. And it wasn't even mentioned. And I know that um, watching goals on Sunday, Ray Parler mentioned this, um, where he suggested and said that, in his view, that. He, and he said just exactly the same as what I've just said in his view that he can see why the referee has sent him off but he doesn't feel that it should have been a sending off but he's looking at it from a player's point of view and the referee is looking at it from a referee's point of view. They are two very different ways to look at things. Um, so from a player's point of view he said I don't think he should have been sent off. I wouldn't have wanted to get sent off uh, if it had been me but would I have wanted it to get sent off if I was Edison? Maybe. He said, However... And he brought it up and said, you know, if that would have happened in the middle of the pitch between two midfielders, two forwards, two defenders, it probably wouldn't have even got a yellow card. So there is that. Um, if you accidentally kick somebody in the face, uh, should you get sent off? All depends on the accident. Um, the, 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 the thing is, it's it's been dealt with, I think, quite well by, by all parties. Sadio Mane... Um, you know, was apparently very much kind of like asking the Man City um, 
staff it, how Edison was and if he was okay and wanted to be let known and he's spoken to Edison about it and has, has kind of said that he's you know issued an apology and said like I, I was going for a ball but he has also come out and said you know if the same thing happens again I will do it again you know and Edison to, to, to his credit has acted very very uh, well within the whole thing and he's he's come out actually and also said that um, that he isn't going to comment whether he thinks it's a red card but he has said you know these things happen. I will guarantee that what the first time he gets clattered, that's the type of keeper he is. He he does come out to those challenges. It's an incredibly brave challenge to make. In the same way as it's an incredibly brave challenge for, for Sadio Mane to make. Um because if you've got six foot two, fifteen stone worth of <laughs> of goalkeeper running at you and you're about to get clattered, fair enough. I actually had a friend who was at the game and he said that he was actually sat in the um Man City and, and he actually said that the general consensus when the referee ran towards it um, he said around him the thought was oh shit they're sending the keeper off so there it is it was it was one of those um, in the sense that I don't think it was a sending off I don't think anyone would have actually blamed the referee if he'd not sent him off if he'd just kind of calmed the situation and gone yellow uh, I think it would have probably been, it probably would, I don't think that there would have been that much fuss made of it, but he didn't red card him, but the, the angle he had very much did make it look like it was dangerous play, which you can argue it was. The thing is, if Edison is half a second later, it's not dangerous play, it's very good play, but he isn't. He, he gets there perceivably at the right time or at, at exactly the wrong time, therefore it what Sadio is doing, therefore does become dangerous player. And that is the thing, this game is played at such, such a pace um, that it is incredibly difficult for referees. I actually think Jonathan Moss is a terrible referee in general, to be honest, and I can't believe he was even given um, the the game uh, between Liverpool and, and Manchester City. I think it's a game well beyond um, his um, actual skill set as a referee. Uh, and I do think he made the decision far too quickly. He was already reaching for his back pocket before he, he'd actually he'd actually got to, to the situation. And I think he he maybe should have given himself a few seconds to kind of go right. Let me just replay it in my head. But I think he, his reaction there was bang red card, which suggests that what happened was is he saw it as dangerous play. Referees there to make uh, a tough decision, and he did make that tough decision quite quickly. So fair enough. I'm not. I was I was angry about the time, but then when you go back and you look at it, and you look at it a little bit more, a little bit less involved in the emotion of the game, uh, if you're a fan, um, then you can see why. I still don't think it was a red card, and uh, I don't think if it happens to, let's just say it's going to happen a few times this season. What is going to happen is next time. When I actually turn out to bet, said what will happen at some point this season is the keeper is going to rush out. And he's going to do the same thing, clatter a forward, and then they're going to get sent off. And it's going to be, right, which one's which then? Um, so that's that's my thoughts on that. Um, so to answer your question, Ian, didn't kick him in the face. It's coming together. Um, that's not a kick. Um, punter uh, at Punter01, um, which is Paul from the Chinstroker versus Punter podcast. Um, how is... How is it Klopp can't organise a defence but retains his job yet De Boer only gets four games? Uh, good question. Um, De Boer, um, I'll answer it in two parts. Um, De Boer got four games um, because the the hierarchy at um, Crystal Palace was split in whether or not they wanted him to be the manager or not. Um, so it was kind of like they saw an opportunity to get rid of him very quickly and they did. Uh, when you bring a manager in who has a very clear um, philosophy of playing you've got managers who have a, a style of playing um, a la a um, the, the man that they've brought in to, to replace um, De Boer in Roy Hodgson is, he has a style he is incredibly dull he's an incredibly dull man um, he's a I find him to be honest and I find him before he became Liverpool manager and it still fucking hurts me to say that I find him always to be an incredibly um, dull and um pompous man who's obsessed with telling you his, his achievements that he had in in Norway 
Fucking hell, in Norway. Anyway, I digress. Um, he's going to come in and he's going to stifle any creativity and he's going to, for the next 32 games, attempt to not lose 32 games. And if he wins 9 or 10 along the way, then brilliant. Um, they might survive. He will proclaim his genius uh, if they do survive. It's four games into the season, I might add. Uh, and Crystal Palace have a very strong squad. Um, and if they go down, he'll say, well, you know... They were bottom of the league when I got here and I just couldn't steady this ship. There's no ship to fucking steady with four games into the season. Um, so, yeah, that's what happened. De Boer is... It's still yet to be seen whether De Boer's a great manager. De Boer, like um, a lot of players around that kind of... And especially Dutch players around that kind of... Well, managers um, around this age. He, he wants to be... Um, he wants to be the... Barcelona manager in the same way that Ronald Koeman wants to be the Barcelona manager so these are stepping stone clubs he moved from Ajax to, to Inter it didn't work at Inter he then went to Crystal Palace it hasn't worked at Crystal Palace he will probably end up with a job at somewhere like uh, a Valencia um, next or one of the Turkish clubs maybe uh, I could see that possibly happening uh, in the, the not too distant future there um, but will he ever be Barcelona manager? It's unlikely. But he has a philosophy. He plays three four three, and he was maybe not given the the license to bring in the players he wanted to um, to play that three four three. He was certainly not given the time to implement it. Would it have worked? I don't know. It might have. It might not have worked. Uh, the, the the fact is though that the four, the three four three works a lot better at, at a club like Ajax uh, than it does at many other clubs. Because of the fact is um, Ajax breed um, their academy, which is one of the greatest academies in world football. They breed footballers there. That's the idea. They don't breed positions there. So in a lot of um, times in academies, when academies take on players, 80% of players that academies take on are forward-based players and then they get moved back. So the biggest kids get moved back to central defence. Um, the quicker kids who can't finish get put into um, wing positions and if they can't cross a ball that well they get put into fullback positions um, midfielders who are slight of frame get put into fullback positions and um, central defenders who are big lads but who can pass a ball get moved into midfield uh, and little nippy five foot nine um, five foot six players who want to be central midfielders uh, and who don't have the finishing ability to be strikers get made into number tens. That, that's that's what happens. That is how uh, the British academy system works. You are essentially assigned a position in Holland. You'll often find, and this can be proven by looking. They are deemed if you're a forward, you should be able to play as a striker, or a winger, or as a uh, a support striker. If you're a midfielder, you should be able to play all facets of midfield plus at least one facet of defence. And if you're a defender, you should be able to play centre back and full back and a defensive midfield position, if required. Therefore, the three four three is a starting block formation where you start with three central defenders. Uh, and then you start with um, four midfielders who can also occupy the fullbacks, or you have three central defenders who can, two of whom who can also play fullback, and then one of your midfielders drops back in to create a back four. And it is a hundred percent fluid football. Hence the the the, the phrase that was um, coined in the um, 60s, 70s of total football. It's a completely fluid system where essentially it's an ecosystem that travels itself round and all of your players can filter in at different positions. Now that's fine if you've got players who've been bred from 10, 11 years old to be able to play three or four different positions. It, it, that's fine. Uh, however, if you've got players like Andros Townsend and Wilfred Zaha, and Christian Benteke as your forward three, they can basically play their positions they're putting. They they can't play these back positions. They can't also, and also a lot of the time in the um, the Ajax youth system, uh, wingers are actually put into use um, as fullbacks to give them an idea of how to play defensive football. There's there's no way as talented players as Wilfred Zahar is that he could ever play as a fullback. Um, so that's that's kind of why it happened. I, I I doubt it would have ever been that much of a success at Crystal Palace. Um, but it does show the fact is that, that uh, chairmen of clubs that could get relegated are so afraid of getting relegated that um, going for a what could be perceived, whether or not he is or not, but if perceived as a progressive coach, 
um, and a, a coach the philosophy like um, De Boer can be replaced so easily with a manager that's philosophy is uh, turgid, miserable football and lowering of expectations as Roy Hodgson can be seen as, as a good thing. Um, I do feel, you know, Chris Pye's supporters are very good supporters and they support their club very well and it's it's always a great atmosphere there and I do feel sorry for them having to put up with having um, that dour um, of, of, of a level of football to look forward to. Um, so, uh, sorry about that, Crystal Palace. Uh, however, I don't, you know, I don't think it quite was working out there. Um, punter uh, again, thank you, Rich Paul. Is it time for a wage, a transfer fee cap, or will football continue to follow society's uh, rich get richer model? Um, it's it's something that you couldn't um, put in a salary cap um, in the sense that it's you'd have to. The thing is. The other salary, and people always point to the fact that there's a salary cap in American sports. Well, the thing there is, they do trades in American sports. And I don't know American sports inside out, so I'm not going to pretend to. However, the NFL, they don't really transfer players in from other leagues in, in, in the world in the same way as football does. So if you're going to have a salary cap, um, then you've got to have it as a, a global salary cap. And then it's a case of um, how does it work? Is it a percentage of your turnover? Well, then you incur the fact is that what you would have is you'd have what has been a phrase that was coined by Arsene Wenger, which is financial doping, which is what you could argue Manchester City and very much Paris Saint-Germain have done, whereby um, they've used their considerable resor- resources um, as the owners for the companies. And essentially they have uh, overpaid for sponsorship deals to flood up to give the turnover a boost. Therefore, turnover has a boost. Therefore, the amount of money that you make in versus the amount of money that you can lose is 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 skewed. So, a, a salary cap. Therefore, would it would it work? Does the question is does something have to be done about the rise in transfer fees and the rise in wages? I don't necessarily agree in the wage thing um, because it's a it's an entertainment industry and the the players are are the ones who are doing the entertaining and they are the ones who are most handsomely rewarded. It's it's a shame because the fact is that watching football, be it in the stadium or on TV, etc., it is getting more and more expensive. But the people who are playing are getting paid more and more and more. Is there a disparity between that? And should there be something done about that? Absolutely. And the fact of the matter is, though, for every one person who's complaining about the price of their ticket, they're also complaining about their club not spending enough in the transfer market. It's a double-edged sword. You can't have one without the other. Um, I think that the Premier League uh, needs to do something about ticket costings. Um, I think that there should be a universal banding. Wherefore, it should be X amount for they should be able to charge for home games versus X amount they should be able to charge for up to away fans. Um, I think that the Premier League should write into their rules that all clubs have to pay um, the living wage uh, to every single employee uh, at the club. It's insane that you might have a um, a nineteen year old kid who is just breaking the team might be on twenty five thousand pound a week. But the um, guy, and he's sat on a bench, uh, or maybe not in the squad, he's sat in the stands watching the game in one of the club's suits. And then you might have a, a kid who's 19 years old, who's going through university, and he's working on the kiosk there, and he's getting paid less than the living wage. Um, yeah, that's disparity of jobs. You can't, it's, it, it all boils back down to the, well, how can a footballer be earning £30,000 a week when a nurse is only earning £30,000 a year? That doesn't make fucking sense. That's like saying, why is a steak £17 but a banana is 17 fucking p? They're different things. Do footballers get paid too much? Probably. Yeah, they probably do. Footballers would probably admit that they get paid too much. But it's an entertainment industry. Do musicians get paid too much? Yes. Do actors get paid too much? Yes. There you go. Do MPs get paid too much? Yes. 
Do I think that comparing a footballer to a nurse is fair? No. Do I think comparing an MP to a nurse is fair? Mm. And they get paid three times the amount for doing less fucking work. So I don't find that. I find that a, a redundant argument to have uh, with, with people. Um, the, the transfer cap, yeah, that, 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 that should um, be... Be looked at without without question. The way the way you could do it is you, you could have abandoned. Um, they should change it so, so that squad size can be only be a certain size, um, and it should be completely one hundred percent ring fenced. Uh, in a sense that um, they should up the um, size of a of your Premier League squad at the moment is twenty five. Um, twenty five over twenty two players, of which seven have to be homegrown, but you can have any number of under twenty two year old players. That is the current squad size. It should be ring-fenced. Um, it should be that your squad shouldn't be allowed to be, and they should be all across Europe, UEFA should be on top of this, um, that your squad cannot be anything more than 45 players. Um, or you could even say, yeah, 45 players there. That gives you four teams you could put out. It's going to be no more than 45 players overall. Overall size of your squad can be no more than 44 players, 45 play players, and 35 of those are named in your Premier League squad, and they are the ones that can play. Now, in that, um, I think if that should be 35 players, but you can add up to 10 academy players throughout a season to that, but they have to have been in your academy from the start of that season. Therefore, you can't go out and buy a 16-year-old kid, sling him in your academy and then state that he can be not added there. So therefore, you can add it as a 35-man squad and that is set. You can't have any more. You can add in January, in January, but it has to be set at 35 and that includes under 22-year-old players. Therefore, you can't have what happens at some clubs, Chelsea in particular, um, of this, where they have a huge squad but loan so many of them out um, and that's what you get. You could have a banding situation where you state, right, you've got between 150,000 and 300,000 is one band, and you can a, a club can have so many players in this, and then you have a second band which is 100 to 150,000, and the club can have players into that, and you have another band, and it goes down, and you can have so many players that fill out each band. But then you kind of there's almost a level of there of are you punishing successful clubs there is a way around it but it take it would take a lot of sitting down and making agreements and sadly the most powerful clubs in the world are also the richest clubs in the world and they'll never do anything to change that they want to keep that fucking monopoly going um another question from punter i'm very glad for all these thank you very much paul uh England under 21 teams are always competitive internationally so what happens between them and moving to the senior side um what happens there is they are they're moved in too many drips and drabs. Um, I, I think is the problem, and I think that too much, um, too much kind of. I don't want to say dead weight, but it is kind of the best way to describe it. Too much of of, of the underperforming it is kept there. Um, I think that. England has a problem uh, in the national team in the fact that it thinks it should be in the top eight clubs in the in the world, and it, it maybe it maybe shouldn't. We produce too many of the same type of players, um, but we also have an identity which doesn't mirror the type of players we produce. Um, so that's that's our problem. We're also constantly trying to search for an identity, and we have been constantly trying to search for an identity for um, since. We, we failed to qualify for the World Cup, um, you know, in, in the 70s. We've we've constantly tried to look to other nations um, to, to kind of take from what we want, uh, especially uh, my generation. You know, we, we've looked at the way that France are doing things. Then we've looked at the way that Spain are doing things. Then we've looked at the way that Germany are doing things. Then we've looked at the way that Belgium are doing things. And the thing is, with all of these nations, what they've done is they've done what they want to do and they've taken a holistic approach to, to how they do it. And now England have tried to take a holistic approach in the way that they've managed the, the, the national team. But then the problem is they keep changing the holistic approach halfway through it 
to kind of mirror whatever is the um, new other version of that time. So we, we changed it to be like France, but then, oh, look what happened with Spain. So then we tried to change, look what's Spain, but then, oh, but look what's happening in Germany. We need to do that. We need to have the root and branch up upheaval and do that because Germany is doing very, oh, Belgium. Oh, what's happening there? Well, the, the head of the Belgian development um, thoughts on it are quite simple. Look, we got lucky. It's nothing to do with the way I'm doing anything. We got lucky. Um, even though they've been assigned, the we, we have very talented players. The problem is we're trying to um, we we let our our club colours mirror what, what what's happening internationally. Um, so we build players up far too much when they're far too young, and then we knock down very good players um, at, at the wrong time. And also, as well, I think there's an idea in that um, players remain awfully young. Uh, as England players now, like we, I keep seeing that uh, Ross Barkley, you know, he's still a young player. He's twenty three. Lionel Messi have won two Player of the World Player of the Year awards by the time he was twenty three. You know, it, it's you know you can argue that Michael Owen's career practically died by the time he was twenty three. It's you know what I'm saying Robbie Fowler. Um, so we we need to kind of readdress the way that we look at international football, also to the extent of um, we we. For instance, we, we, we had a healthy win against Malta the other week and we still criticised players. Um, playing international football is is difficult. It, it's not as easy as club football because they're not with these players that much. Um, England under-21s, the under-21 players are infinitely better than their counterparts, majoritively. Are, they, are the England under-21 players better than the Dutch under-21 players, the Spanish under-21 players, and the Italian under-21 players? They're on a level with them. They are, but the these players who play for Holland's international uh, under twenty ones and Spain's under twenty ones, Italy's under twenty ones, even France under twenty ones. If you look, they will reach two hundred career games a lot quicker than English under twenty one players will often reach um, two hundred career games. I think at the moment, I think the England under twenty ones captain. Is Joe Gomez, the Liverpool player, a very good prospect and a good player, but he's 21, 22 years old, I think he is, 21 years old. Uh, he's only at 50, 60 career games. It's, you know, then you, you can look at someone like Amaric Laporte, the uh, France international, 22 years old, and I think he's at 200 career games already. It's That's the thing, is, is um, these players need to be given an opportunity to, to fail. Essentially, you know, part of part of being a, a great footballer is is growing that maturity. If by the time you get to 25, 26, you're still at, you're only just hitting two hundred career games. You've not had the chance to to fail. So that by the time you get to 27, 28, you're that's when, you know that's when you're starting to become a mature player. Now, mature players should be when they're in their you know football. Football's careers go from 18 to 34, 35. It's a 15-year career. So therefore, that middle ground is is where we give too much too much stock. And then all of a sudden, players are 27, 28 years old. And we've still not got to the mindset that these players are actually should be mature players who should be leading teams. I also think that England keep players there too, too long. Um, Joe Hart, for instance, shouldn't be England's number one. He's not... He, Get Jack Buckland in there um, and let him make his mistakes in friendlies and qualifiers that are meaningless so he can get to a World Cup as as England's number one keeper, which he probably should be. But also we need to get rid of the idea of standing. Italy don't have standing. It doesn't matter the fuck you are. If you're good enough to play for the World for the international team, you'll play for it. That's why Italy always do very well. So... Having bringing players into the squad, having a settled international squad where you know who's going to be in it every single time it's released, and you can pretty much guess of the 23, 21, 22 of them, and there's the occasional fucking surprise of a player who's had a decent six weeks but then he never comes in again. That's that's wrong. Um, also, we've relied too heavily on um, players who have had past glories who, who have had injuries. Um, there's no point in taking an injured player to a tournament. The reason why England have failed at tournaments is they've carried too much 
pretty much dead weight. Um, so that's, I think, why is that they're not given chance. Um, a prime example was a couple of years ago. Um, Jay Rodriguez, the um, ex-Southampton player now at West Brom, was brought into the international fold. And he had a poor first couple of games, but he was kind of played out of position. But it was instantly decided that he's not of England quality because he he had, a, he had an inauspicious start to his England career. Well, you've not fucking given him a chance. You've written him off after a game and a half where he's been played out of position. You know, but then you might have, and I do rate Harry Kane quite highly. You have Harry Kane who, who has a stinking Euros, and he did have a stinking Euros, but nobody ever turns around and says, well, maybe he's just not cut out for international football, which he is thoroughly. I'm not having a Harry Kane. What I'm saying here is we need to just have a little bit more patience with the England team and accept the fact that actually we it, it's not as good as it probably as we think it probably is. So therefore, we need to allow it a chance to fail and not think that it's a disaster every time it does. And also, international football only matters at tournaments. So let's wait and fucking see what happens there. Um, so that's my answer to that. Um, Tom Ripley actually replied to um, to the the comment about what is it um, about Crystal Palace saying Crystal Palace didn't score a single goal, which is true. Crystal Palace didn't score a single goal, um, and it's and then um, Paul responded saying it's surely an issue with the forwards, not a manager who's only a few games in. And yeah, I think that um, often players to form a question out of that. I think often players do get away uh, with a lot when managers get sacked. I think the manager is always the, the first part of call um, in terms of when things get sacked. And if a player drops their uh, application by 5%, if an entire squad does that, that's the difference between getting beat 1-0 and getting beat 4-5-0. You know, Liverpool proved that in their game um, against Manchester City. They proved that. And getting back to a question that I only actually answered half of uh, earlier when he was saying about the, uh, when Paul asked the question about how his clock can't organise defence but retains his job. Um, clock can't organise defence is my answer there. Defence, the reason why Liverpool concede so many goals is the way that Liverpool play. We play, um, it's, it's twofold. Um, Liverpool are going to concede a lot of goals in the same way that Klopp's Borussia Dortmund team conceded a lot of goals. That's the way he plays. He plays a high-press game. Wherefore, if you get past that first, if you get past, it's three blocks. So you've got the starting block where everything moves forward. Your forwards move forward to attack the ball. Your field then moves up and your defence moves up. So there's a lot of space behind. Your idea there would be your keeper would then step up. Um, Mingley doesn't like stepping up. That's why he brought in Carrius. Carrius hasn't quite worked yet. I do think that Carrius will be Liverpool's first choice keeper by the start of next season. Uh, I think that excuse me, Mingley will move on and will go to Napoli, I believe. Just a future prediction from me whether that comes off. I might be talking absolute broken biscuits, but there we go. Um, because Liverpool play that block, once you get past that block, if anybody switches off for a brief fraction of a second like Emre Chan did against Seville, everything has to drop back quite quickly. Um, when you're pedalling back, mistakes make easier. Um, the reason why Liverpool concede so many goals is because um, their defenders aren't good enough. Simple as that. Um, I believe Joe Matip is a very good defender and with a better partner against him, I think he, he is he is easily a top-four defender. Um, Dejan Lovren... Um, Dejan Lovren is a top-four defender because he's played for a top-four club for a, a, a few seasons. You know, that's that, that's, that just is it. The problem is Dejan Lovren... Has a rick in him in every in, in each game. Dejan Lovren's concentration will go, and he has a rick in him. He's he should be the third or fourth choice defender at a top four club. Maybe not a title aspiration club, but a top four club. If he was at any club down from Everton, all the way down to the bottom of the league, he'd be their best defender. At Liverpool, he's currently our probably second best defender. And he shouldn't be Liverpool's second best defender. He should be Liverpool's third, or even to an argument, fourth best defender. Now, when the season started, uh, when, through, when the transfer window opened, I hoped that Liverpool were going to bring in two central defenders um, for it because Sacco was already going gone. Um, and we were also losing um, Lucas, who could fill in as a centre-back and was actually quite steady as a centre-back. We brought him none. So... Liverpool now for a what is 
a, a long season uh, with Champions League football. I've got their central defenders are Joe Matip, Dejan Lovren, Ragnar Klavan, and Joe Gomez. Joe Gomez has played less than 10 games as a central defender in his career. Um, Ragnar Klavan is... He's not at that level. He's a, he's a good defender, but he's not a very good defender. Uh, it's not his fault he's not good enough. He's good enough to be fourth or fifth choice defender at Liverpool. He shouldn't be third choice. Dejan Lovren isn't good enough to be second choice defender, to be, the, to be the starting defender at a club like Liverpool. He should be third, possibly even fourth choice. Joe Matip is good enough to be a starting player, but he needs a strong player side, and that player was... Virgil van Dijk. Now, what happened there, I don't know. Um, I still think Virgil van Dijk will, will join Liverpool in January or possibly next season. Do I agree with the fact that Liverpool didn't go for anybody else? No, I think it's insane that Liverpool didn't go for anybody else. They could have brought in a a defender there. I do not believe for a second there was only one central defender. They could have gone for Koulibaly at um, Napoli, they could have gone for um, Stefan de Vigera at um, Lazio. They could have gone in for him. They could have gone in for one of the... Um, somebody like Amerika Laporte, for instance. I, I know he he probably won't come. I'm very well aware of that. Um, from Atletico Bilbao, um, they could have gone in for him. They, uh, who else was there that I think thought at the time that they could have gone in for? And they could have gone for um, someone like Harry Maguire who ended up at Leicester. He was a very solid defender um, and you know, would have been a good, a good second or third choice um, central defender. So to have the argument that there was only one defender out there is a, is a weak argument. I get it that Klopp has number one targets. If he doesn't get them, he doesn't go for anybody else. I get that logic. The trouble is it's left Liverpool vastly understaffed in um, such a key area and an area that, that absolutely needed um, taking care of. Um, Liverpool are one of the easiest teams uh, I have seen to score against uh, in the fact that they will give you a clear um, chance to score against. I it's Partly it is down to organisational defending, um, but it's not new. This has happened... Um, Liverpool have been conceding goals um, far too easily since Benitez's last season in charge. So you had Benitez's last season in charge where the wheels kind of fell off because Benitez got too, had, had gotten too embroiled in the, the politics that were in the background with Hicks and Gillette at the club. Uh, then fucking Uncle fucking Roy came in um, and we were still conceding goals there, mainly just because people fucking despised the cunt. And then you had um, Down Cleesh. There was problems when Down Cleesh was there. Uh, then you moved on to Brendan Rodgers. There were still problems when Brendan Rodgers was was there, and there's still problems when Klopp's there. It's a it's a problem that Liverpool have as as a club have had for nearly a decade now, in the sense that they they are an easy team to score goals against. Um, they give you opportunities. It's become Almost like a, it's almost become endemic within within the club, and it needs. One thing is, I think Liverpool need a few tougher sort of characters around the club, who will who will be turning around and, and organising things. I think that was the idea about getting Van Dijk in the sense that, as accomplished defender he is, as good in the air as he is, etc. He's also very very good at organising his defence, and not only his defence, um, his his first shield of. of players but Liverpool play a high block with two fast fast full backs who go forward leaving two central defenders often who come up very high up the pitch and normally what you'd have there is you'd have a um, a midfielder um, a defensive midfielder who would then slot in to create three at the back or at least two at the back if a defender if one of the central defenders went forward Liverpool don't have that we don't play with a defensive midfielder we don't even have a defensive midfielder at the club um, so there's no one coming and slotting in there. So when teams break on us, they can break on us quite well. The other point we've got is, is we're shaped from set pieces. At both ends of the pitch, we're terrible from set pieces. So that, that there is where tactically things need to happen. But it's, I, think it's, I purely think it's concentration. I think Liverpool players are that concentrated on getting the ball up the pitch and scoring goals that 
that is constantly in their focus. They're not defensive-minded enough to the sense of where when a ball drops, they look up to see where they can break. By the time they've looked up to see where they can break, the ball's gone and they've lost the second ball and X team has a chance to score. That is my feeling behind that. Um, this ridiculousness of is Klopp still the right man for Liverpool? Yes, of course he is. He's, the, he's a very good manager for Liverpool and what he's doing is, is, is very good there. We're a much better team now than we were. However, however, Manchester United are a better team than they were. Chelsea are a better team than they were. Tottenham are a better team than they were. Man City are a better team than they were. Everybody's better. So Liverpool have got to become better than that. We finished fourth last season. That can't be forgotten. And yeah, we got a tonkin from Man City. And we got taught a bit of a fucking lesson. But I don't think a home draw against Seville, uh, who are a very good team, is that bigger thing. I think that there's a current kind of obsession and I think it's partially because of the transfer fallout because Liverpool didn't get Van Dijk that Liverpool had this war for defence. I think our defence last season was the sixth best in the Premier League. That's not that bad. We finished fourth and your defence is the sixth best and your attack is the second best, I believe. It's weighing one up against the other. It's a style of play. Will it win us the title? Probably not. Does it make us a fucking entertaining watch? Yeah, kind of does. You know, a friend of mine is a Chelsea fan and he always states, I'd much prefer to watch this Liverpool team than the Chelsea team I've got. And they won the title last season. Um, don't get me wrong, I'd prefer it to be a little bit duller and to win a title, but that's just me. Um, so, yes, yeah, so thank you for listening for me. Uh, we're on for an hour about football. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, Obviously, we've got the film podcast. We've also got the Patreon. Uh, this podcast does remain free, but the Patreon stuff uh, is there for people who are willing to give us that little bit of, of cash uh, to get that little bit of extra content. So that's uh, Patreon slash Dude and a Monkey. Dudeandamonkey.com, at DudeFoz, at Dudeandamonkey, at Ian Loring. Uh, that was episode three or four, I can't remember, of Damn You Football. Thank you very much for listening. I should be back in either a week or a fortnight. Um, I hope you want a more of a regular schedule with this um, now my work situation has sort of eased itself out. I thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.